Welcome to Foul Play. This is the series My Aunt and the Hitman. I'm your host, Wendy C, and this is episode two, My Aunt Sharon. In episode one, we heard the 999 call when Sharon's body was found on the 7th of December 2007 and learnt what the police found when they arrived at the scene. I want to start this episode by telling you more about my amazing, eccentric Aunt Sharon. She was born on Wednesday the 25th of May, 1955, in Farnham, Surrey. She was the middle child with two older brothers and a younger brother and sister. Her dad, my granddad, worked for the council, looking after the street lamps, while her mum looked after the house and the children. The family lived in a three-bedroom, semi-detached council property that was provided as part of her dad's job. It was a lively and full house. The three boys shared one room, while the two girls shared the box room. It was one of those houses where everyone was welcome. Sharon's mum, my nan, loved people. The house was always full to the brim with family, neighbours and friends. The children would all invite friends round after school. There was never a dull or quiet moment. But that's what my nan loved. Nan loved to bake and would always make sure there were rock cakes, scones and other baked items available for those that dropped by. And if it was dinner time, everyone shuffled around and made space to pull up another chair. Sharon worked for Surrey County Council, both on the roads and in the office, until her health issues meant she had to give up work. She met George in 1971 when she was just 17 and fell head over heels in love. They married at Gretna Green on the 22nd of June, 1978, and moved into Harriet's Lane a few years later. They did not have any children of their own, but Sharon adored her nieces and nephews. You know there's always that person in your family that's a bit eccentric. They dye their hair funky colours, they wear bright colours and patterns, and have a larger-than-life personality. That was my Aunt Sharon, and... Oh yes, I think I've now taken over that role in the family. Sharon was one of those people that would light up the room when she entered. She had an infectious, guffawing laugh and was always smiling. My dad was six years older than Sharon, but in his police statements he said about his three younger siblings, I don't remember anything specific about them really, just that they were around and were a nuisance to me as younger siblings are. I mean, I can totally relate to this as I'm sure many of you can. He went on to say, I think one of my earliest recollections of Sharon was when she was about 10 to 12 years old. She was definitely a daddy's girl, and I remember when we would play cards with him for money, she would often be funded by him. He went on to describe Sharon as A ruddy, wholesome, good-looking kid. Not a whiner. I don't remember her causing any problems. What I do know and remember about Sharon was that she had very strong convictions. When Sharon believed in something, she believed in it heart and soul. Phyllis, Sharon's friend and former neighbour, described Sharon to a T. Sharon was a larger-than-life personality. You knew she was there. She had a wonderful laugh, very friendly, very warm, kind person, and welcoming to anybody. The moment you would go, she would invite you in and would love to talk. She just loved to talk to people. And I would say she settled in very nicely into Harriet's Lane, very welcomed. 
She was a great charity shop person, went around collecting clothes from all sorts of charity shops and would bring all the clothes up to me because she was going to a special event and she wanted to look her best. And she would then try them on and myself and my husband were had to judge exactly, you know, what we thought suited her best. And then she would say, now, would you like this? And she came with a fur coat for me one day and so on. So, yes, she was... A giving person. Oh my word, was she flamboyant. She loved quite bright colours and so on. And she once said to us, well, if I went into a room with a thousand people, sure enough, they'd know I'd arrived because she was loud, but in a lovely way. Everything was matching. We always said, look at her earrings, the whole lot would all be colour toned. And then Phyllis went on to tell me a story about Sharon going to a silver wedding party. It made me laugh. It really summed Sharon up. When she went with totally top to tail in her silver outfit, shoes, bag, dress, earrings, everything. And uh, she laughed because she said when her brother saw, he said, have you come dressed for the oven, Sharon? Because she looked as if she was wrapped in tin foil. I also asked my Aunt Lauren to describe her sister, Sharon. She was larger than life. She was the centre of attention the minute she walked in a room. Men particularly were very fond of her and would be drawn to her. She was sort of magnetic. She was very flamboyant. She always had everything matching. So if she was wearing blue, for instance, she'd have blue eye shadow, blue shoes, blue handbag, everything would go together. And when she had a stick, she would wrap ribbon of the right colour around the stick because it was one of those seats that you open up and sit on and she would make sure that it all matched in perfectly. She was very, very particular about that sort of stuff. So she was quite particular. She was very naive in some ways, but she was very knowledgeable in other ways. She used to be very inquisitive, so she would it would be like being grilled when you ask your questions. You'd just be sitting there and it'd be like somebody would fire all these different questions because she wanted to know the ins and outs of everything. Sharon was a caring person and was absolutely passionate about things she believed in. Phyllis shared with me some of the causes that Sharon fought for when she lived in Ashstead. She then became much more involved in the community. She worked, well, through a mutual friend, she became involved with the Friends of the Earth. This friend of ours, he started basically can crushing. She would go and make cardboard boxes, which then would be put in places like the leisure centre, so for people to recycle their cans. And from then on, she became involved on the committee with Friends of the Earth, all sorts of rallying and so on would she do. So that's, that's sort of one side of her, a great campaigner. And then there was a proposal to build a motorway right at the end of Sharon's long garden. She was furious and was determined to get compensation for herself and her neighbours. When she got a bee in her bonnet, she certainly was a force to be reckoned with. Basically, when the motorway was first proposed, it was either going our way or another way, but somehow it was coming our way. And so Sharon had a pretty large garden. They were allowed to buy, they had their own garden and they were allowed to buy some land at the back. But then the motorway was there, so it was ever-present, a continual roar. And we had to put up with it. Sharon was really, you know, upset about that and uh, did her best for us, really. She was very much, you know, right is right and wrong is wrong, and, and that's the way she wanted to be. We got compensation for three-lane motorway. When it became four-lane, she was incensed, um, not only with the fact the trees were taken down, but she thought we should have more compensation. So she went straight to the top. She was interviewed on Surrey Radio, and sure enough, we got our compensation. Sharon and George didn't have any children. 
but Sharon loved animals and treated them like babies. I can remember as a child going to visit her, and one of the bedrooms in her house was full of cages of rabbits and guinea pigs. She loved to care for them and nurture them. She would even take the rabbits out for a walk, on a lead. See, I told you she was eccentric. I wasn't the only person who remembers the rabbits, though. Sharon's friend and neighbour, Phyllis, also remembers them. I love this story so much, it really sums Sharon up. Well, the first time um, I got to know her, soon after she moved in, I saw this person walking along with a beautiful white lop-eared rabbit on a lead. The rabbit was called Wolf, and my children, we had a pet rabbit, and they obviously were very keen. And I have photographs of my children taking the rabbit for a walk. And from then on, they used to go across to the house because she had numerous guinea pigs in cages in the house. So they had a lovely time over there. So that's how I first got to know her. Always very friendly from then on. As her health deteriorated, Sharon walked with a stick. It was one of those that opened out into a seat so that if she needed to take a break and sit down, she could stop and have a rest. She no longer had a car, so relied on public transport. And George would also give her lifts to and from the station sometimes. While on the outside, Sharon always had a smile for everyone. Inside, she was hurting. Her health was poor and she was in pain. I asked Lauren about Sharon's health issues. She had ME, she had various health issues. She had high blood pressure. She was just felt safer with having the stick than, and also being able to sit down whenever she wanted to was also important for her to be able to do. She never complained to general people, but I, I seem to have that sort of face that everybody always complains to me. <laughs> So yes, we did talk about it in depth quite a lot and how she was suffering and yes, but she wouldn't have done that in the general way, no. So my beautiful, funny, eccentric aunt was found lifeless, strangled and tied up under a mound of clothes on her bed. What a way for a life to end. DCI Maria Woodall's team finished their initial investigation. Due to the complicated and unusual way that Sharon had been bound and covered, Maria had called the forensic pathologist to the scene to examine Sharon in situ. She was then moved to the mortuary for an autopsy, where the bindings would be removed and an analysis of Sharon's wounds could be made. Retired Detective Sergeant Simon Cork describes what was found during the autopsy. During the autopsy, they found that in Sharon's clenched hand, she had a postage stamp which we could establish had been torn from a letter that had been delivered on the 4th of December. This was one of the first clues that the police had to the actual date of Sharon's death. A stamp clenched in her hand that had come from a Christmas card that Sharon had received on the 4th of December from her mum. Back in 2007, our postal service was a lot more reliable than it is today so the police were able to establish the date received from the postmark. Lauren tells me in her own words what she was told at the time. It was a Christmas card from my mum that arrived on that actual day, the 4th of December. So what a lovely thing for her to see before the horror of what happened next. The last Christmas card Sharon would ever read. The last Christmas card my nan would ever send her daughter. As the investigation continued, more clues pointing towards the 4th of December came to light, both from inside the house and from house-to-house inquiries. The police were also trying to establish why someone was in the house, 
Was it a burglary gone wrong? DCI Woodall told me what she found during the investigation. When I was looking around the kitchen, Sharon had her basket that she'd been out shopping with that day and her purse was actually laying on the top of the basket. So if somebody was in there to steal something, they'd left that behind. So was it a burglary at that point? I didn't think it had been. She went on to say... Well, there was a neighbour in Harriet's Lane that had seen Sharon walking up the lane on the 4th of December at about 5 o'clock-ish. I mean, it was dark, but Sharon always wore a fluorescent jacket. So this neighbour saw her and gave that time. You can tell from this account that Sharon was a very safety-conscious person. It was December. She knew she was likely to get home after dark. The roads around her house were windy, with no pavements in a lot of places so Sharon wore a fluorescent jacket to make sure she was seen. DS Cork was part of the action team who did house-to-house inquiries. One neighbour had seen Sharon walking down the road. I think it was from Barnetwood Lane and towards uh, down Harriet's Lane towards the home address because our inquiries revealed that she'd been to the library, so I think she'd just got off the bus and then she was walking down the road back home. There was a witness who saw Sharon getting off the bus after she'd been to the library and there was extensive viewing of the CCTV of uh, Guildford Town Centre and Sharon could be seen in various points at the railway station and in the town centre. She wasn't being followed, there was nothing suspicious. The CCTV footage from Guildford Station on the 4th of December showed Sharon wearing the same clothes as those she was found in on the 7th of December. This helped the police to pinpoint her actual date of death. At this point, I want to take a moment to explain what Sharon's house was like and how she lived. It will help you to understand that the police investigation was tricky. As I mentioned before, Sharon lived in a three-bedroom bungalow, which she had bought with George when they were married. The problem was that both her and George were hoarders, and despite being divorced, George still had many of his belongings in the house. Nearly every room was full of stuff. George's DJ equipment, electrical cables, filing cabinets full of accounts, clippings from newspapers. Sharon would scrawl on any piece of paper that she could find and keep everything. And I mean everything. As an example, while the police painstakingly trawled through filing cabinet after filing cabinet to try to find clues... I would get calls as my number was found on old business cards from businesses that I had had years before. Sharon never threw anything away. I mean, you never know when you might need it, right? DC Deacon describes his first impressions of the house. So we saw this crime scene within a couple of days of the actual incident. It was very cold, but the place was a mess, a complete mess. The front room where, the, where Sharon was living was warm and reasonably tidy with a settee. The rest of the place was full of junk and rubbish. And it transpires a lot of the junk and rubbish belonged to Mr Birchwood because he obviously kept his, his finger in the pie in, in regards to the house. And he was going back there on a regular basis to see Sharon for her to do the work for him. But her bedroom, because it was still a crime scene, was in a, a complete mess. And obviously where the bedclothes had been piled up on the bed where she'd, been, um, where she'd been placed by the offender. I remember as a teenager going to Sharon's house and having to clear a space on the sofa to sit down and walking down the corridor with all of the doors to the other rooms closed. I always thought she was very secretive. 
but I now know that every room was piled high with stuff. My Aunt Lauren confirmed this. I think they were both hoarders. She never told any member of the family except myself that she was divorced. And this charade was that he would turn up at birthdays or any celebration, he would turn up as if they were still married. So the whole family just assumed that they were still married. They shared the house and he had an awful lot of stuff in the house everywhere. I mean, the loft was chock-a-block. Every single room was full. The only rooms you could get into were the lounge, her bedroom, the kitchen, bathroom and toilet. That was the only rooms. And it was a three-bedroom bungalow with a separate dining room. And in my dad's police statement, the state of Sharon's house was mentioned. He said, I was very aware of how Sharon lived. Her house was not maintained inside or out. No effort had been made and the place looked very much neglected. I visited Sharon at home on perhaps three or four occasions in all the time they were there, although I did call round to see her on other occasions when she was not there. On one occasion, I can remember she had carpets spread out all over the front garden to keep the weeds down. She was quite eccentric. The inside of the house was quite unbelievable. On one visit, I remember one of the rooms was full of rabbit hutches and rabbit droppings. I can remember asking my mum what was going on. One of the times I visited... I dropped in on Sharon unannounced. I only went into the kitchen and thought it was quite a bit tidier than normal for Sharon, though still totally unacceptable for other people. The police certainly had a task on their hands. Trying to find evidence in amongst all the stuff that was in the house was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. But tiny step by tiny step, they were getting there. Thank you for listening to episode two of My Aunt and the Hitman. In episode three, we will learn more about Sharon and George's relationship and the police find more evidence that she was murdered on the 4th of December. We had to build up the rapport with him. As far as he was concerned, we were there to find out anything he can tell us about his life, Sharon's life, and things like that. He was there to to trust me. He took to me rather than my friend, my colleague. And I was the one he always phoned up and spoke to when he wanted something or the wish me Merry Christmas and things like that. And so we built that rapport up and slowly but surely he started making mistakes. This podcast was written and produced by me, Wendy C. It was edited by the amazing team at Foul Play and Arclight Media. Any profits made from this podcast will go to Friends of the Earth and Refuge, both charities that were close to my aunt Sharon's heart.